Welcome to the MS Gym Podcast, where we give you the tools to live life by design, not by diagnosis. I'm your host, Brooke Slick, and here we go. A little housekeeping off the top. Part one and two of our interview with Dr. Richard Burt will be available to view on YouTube. There will be links available in the episode notes. Hello, everyone. I'm super excited about these next two episodes. Of course, any episode that has anything to do with HSCT, hematopoietic stem cell transplant, is super important to me. For the last 10 years, I've been a vocal advocate for HSCT, screaming about it from the top of my lungs through social media, blogging, and to anyone who would listen or inquired. As you may or may not know, my co-host Jody and I have both received HSCT for our MS. Me in Russia 10 years ago and Jody in Mexico in 2018. So when Dr. Richard Burt's team reached out to us to discuss all things HSCT, as well as his recently released book, Everyday Miracles, that puts forth in lay terms his long road to accomplishing his goals, we were beyond open to having the opportunity to ask all the questions we ever wanted to know. Those questions include the reasoning behind his choices for inclusion and exclusion of certain patients for this treatment, in particular MS patients. Questions like, which MS patients does this treatment work for? Who doesn't it work for and why? So who is Dr. Richard Burt? I'll explain. He's the determined and innovative physician who pioneered the use of HSCT in the US. Within the HSCT community, he's considered the godfather of HSCT and yes, in case you're wondering, he is the doctor who treated actress Selma Blair. For the last 35 years, with laser focus and blinders on to block out any peripheral static from naysayers, Dr. Burt has been quietly and methodically raging against the machine that is today's medical system. Armed with the knowledge he gained while treating patients with leukemia with HSCT, he felt certain it could possibly halt the progression of certain autoimmune diseases and in many cases reverse symptoms. So he plowed forward with a mission to prove his hypothesis, but it wouldn't happen overnight. There were randomized trials, hundreds of patients, many diseases, and in the end, life-changing success stories. Dr. Burt was the first doctor in the U.S. to finally give hope to patients with MS, lupus, Crohn's, Stiff Person Syndrome, and CIDP, when in the past they'd grappled with a life filled with a long list of ineffective drugs and certain disease progression. To be clear, just because he was butting up against systemic red tape here in the U.S. doesn't mean he wasn't becoming a highly decorated peer by the international medical community and beyond. His list of rewards granted by esteemed medical organizations is lengthy and impressive. I mean, seriously, how many doctors do you know who've been presented the keys to the Vatican in Vatican City, Rome? He's even been recognized by Science Illustrated for accomplishing one of the top 10 medical breakthroughs for the next 10 years. And the foreword for his book was written by uh, the Dalai Lama. Yes, Dr. Burt has got the juice so much so that we had to squeeze it out in two full episodes, both of which are packed with answers from pointed questions that you won't find anywhere else, asked by HSCT veterans 
who for over a decade have been privy to all the insider speculation regarding Dr. Burt's methodology, like why he will or won't treat certain MS patients, why he uses certain drugs in his protocol, and what he considers a successful HSCT. It's time to dig in and peel back the curtain on HSCT with Dr. Richard Burt. Let's go. Dr. Burt, thank you so, so much for coming on the MS Gym podcast. How are you today? Very good, and uh, thank you for inviting me. As we spoke a little earlier, I recently listened to your book on Audible, which I don't even know if a lot of people know that it's available on Audible. It's available hardback, but also on Audible, and it was it was awesome. And honestly, I was a little intimidated when I started listening because I looked down and I think it's eight hours. I'm like, eight hours, which really isn't that long, but I'm like, eh, well, I am telling you, the next thing you know, it was the end. I'm like, it's over? Really? So it really, it sucked me in. And the really cool thing about the book is it's it's awesome for a lay person. A lay person, someone with MS who you know doesn't know the medical speak, you're very good at explaining it in a way that somebody who is researching HSCT would understand. So I appreciated that. So, so thank you for that comment. And from my perspective, I really loved writing this book because the everyday miracles, because it, it yes. took me back to the humanities and college and, you know, once I got into medicine and science and you have to write a certain way and um, it's the kind of thing that would put you to sleep at night. Uh, I mean, it's important and uh, you get good at it, um, but it's, it's just not going to resonate with people outside of that subspecialty. And so as a matter of fact, um, this medical textbook I published came out in November of 2021, just a year ago. It's 686 pages with 140 professors, associate professors from around the world. And again, this is a medical textbook. So, you know, uh, it was designed for professionals in the field, uh, not for the lay public. Although I've often found patients read up a lot on their disease and, you know, they're frustrated with the standard drugs out there. So they do their own research. And so they will, many of them, because they're very bright and informed, will get something out of it. But uh, obviously, medical terms are not explained. You know, it's recognized that you probably already know them. So it's written for a different audience. And despite all my publications and uh, doing medical textbooks and so forth, it just seemed like there was more and more confusion out there. And so I felt it was important to also get a book out. And the confusion was in the medical community, research community, and of course, the lay media and patients. Although in general, I'd say patients who read up on this were the least confused, uh, but there's always some confusion. So I thought I wanted to empower the patients and make it more understandable. And so I kind of did this as a profiles in courage. There's 54 patients in here. And then also I tied it into how it was developed, the, or at least how I developed it with the different protocols for each disease in here. There are five of them, uh, as well as how the idea occurred or originated for me as a pioneer in the field. Um, and writing these patient stories, I just absolutely loved doing it. And I did it with each patient. Of course, I explained to them that they don't feel any obligation. They owe me nothing. 
But I found they all wanted to do this. They were glad to do it. They were excited to be a part of this. Um, and then I wrote it in my words, but I read it back to them. I sent it to them to proof and make sure they're okay. There are no last names. I specifically asked and said I wouldn't put any last names. And I gave everybody the option for a fictitious or pseudo first name. They could use their real first name if they wanted, but I want to try to protect them. Uh, I was trained, you know, in HIPAA to protect uh, patients' confidentiality, but everybody uh, signed a consent that they're releasing it and they agree with it and they all saw it before it got put in the textbook. And uh, probably I think the where I would regret is that there were, I had had so many patients that could not be included. Uh, right. And I, I think everybody's story is so interesting and so unique uh, that it would have been good to get everybody in there. However, then the book would have been really massive. And right. the publishing house initially only wanted 50,000 words. And when I got to 70,300 words, they kind of put the brakes on because they said people just won't read the bigger books and then why write it? So uh, we stopped at 70,300 words. Um, and covered five diseases and uh, 54 patients, as well as the last chapter on why I thought this wasn't taking off and why, you know, it, it's so confusing out there. Right. Some of the stories, I know who the people are. So, it, it, but it was interesting knowing the people and then knowing your version of the story, looking at them. It's really cool how involved you were with each patient case you know, right up to and including, you know, sleeping in the hospital or sleeping by their bedside. I mean, it's not like you checked out at five o'clock and said, okay, good luck with your chemo today. See ya. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't sound like it was ever that kind of scenario for you that you were deeply involved in every single case. Well, that's true. Um, I had a passion for it. I developed it. Uh, but also if you're going to be a good doctor, you have to be patient oriented. And I think uh, that comes into conflict at times with system-oriented things that kind of live for their rules and their procedures. Uh, and that's why I say at the end, you need independent doctors that are not employees of a hospital or an institution, but that can represent their patients so they can be patient-oriented and the patient chooses them that they'll fight for them, not just fight for the best medical uh, care or psychological care, social care, but fight for what's best financially for them. Because uh, in our training, we know nothing about the costs and comparative cost analysis of different treatments. And uh, it's not in any of the medical literature for approval of a, of a drug. And uh, you know, you're, you're just not aware of it, about it as a physician which is kind of unfortunate because one of the things I did is I sat down and did a cost analysis of transplant versus drugs. And I published that in two diseases and the transplant was markedly superior, um, right. not just the outcomes, but the actual cost to the patient or to, to uh, society or to the insurance company. So um, unfortunately, more and more doctors are just becoming employees that are pushed to bill RVUs to feed the bureaucracy above them. And at the end of the year, if they don't make their expected quota, they're uh, penalized. If they exceed it, they're giving big bonuses, you know? So right. um, I'm, I think that's counterproductive in medicine. Uh, 
like when you go to a lawyer, you've got to expect that lawyer to fight for you, not be an employee of the circuit court judge or of the prosecutor's attorney's office, but an, but an independent that can fight for you. And uh, I think that's slipping out of the hands of doctors uh, and it's losing that patient orientation that is the key uh, because of the patients don't feel you're fighting for, for that you're fighting for them. Uh, you know, it's gonna destroy uh, patient-physician trust and bonds and that just causes everything to collapse when that happens. Everything hinges on trust. Basically, to be a good doctor, you have to be patient-oriented. Over the last 10 years, well, I know for a fact, over the last 10 years, at least in my experience of, I'm in all the groups that you discuss in your book. So but, I'm sure there's many more, and I apologize that I didn't include them, because I have no social media, and I don't no, know no. any of that stuff. What I was going to say is, I think in the last 10 years, one of the reasons I didn't go to Chicago is because my insurance wouldn't cover it. And I had Blue Cross they had really good insurance at the time. I don't know how many letters we sent back and forth. They weren't having it. They weren't going to pay for it. So whatever. But these days, it seems like there are a lot more insurances that are covering it. They're definitely coming around. Um, yeah. But from my perspective, I want you to know all I want. I'm, I'm glad you got the treatment. It's not important whether it's here or somewhere else. It's that you get effective treatment and you're doing good. Right. Okay, so HSCT, hematopoietic stem cell transplant. Can you tell us in lay terms exactly what it is? In this case, for MS, but I mean, what happens? What happens when a patient with an autoimmune disease like MS has HSCT? Yeah, so the problem is that HSCT, which stands for hematopoietic stem cell transplant, is in itself a big misnomer. So it misdirects people that really don't understand the field, that includes professional people, into thinking that the stem cell is a drug. Yeah. It's a total misdirect, and it is not. It what it it's a it's a came out of the field of oncology doing autologous transplants or allogeneic that to recover hematopoiesis after chemotherapy for cancer, you would have to give back the bone marrow stem cells. And later they figured out you do peripheral blood stem cells, you didn't need bone marrow, but you'd have to give back stem cells to recover hematopoiesis, that is to recover the ability of the marrow to make bloods, to make blood cells. And if it doesn't do that, you're not going to live. So it, it was a, a supportive blood product is all it was. And in the case of autologous transplant for cancer, it had no therapeutic effect against the cancer whatsoever. It's just you gave such high doses to try to kill, the, like in leukemia, you want to kill the stem cells. That's where the cancer is. So you totally nuked the bone marrow. So you, you either had to collect stem cells before that give back, and surprisingly, that would give long remissions or even cure some, or you'd use them from another person. Um, and then when they were doing it for solid tumors, it was usually almost always autologous, your own being given back because it wasn't the stem cell compartment affected, but you'd give as high a dose as you could to kill, to try to kill as much of the tumor as possible. And that would then kill the bone marrow. You couldn't go to higher doses because you'd kill the liver or the lungs, and then you couldn't, you know, give back a new liver or a new lung. Although that would sometimes happen in those cancer regimens. So it was really never a therapeutic product especially when it's autologous. When it's autologous, there's no transplant from somebody else. It's just collecting your blood and giving it back. It's a blood right. product. 
that just happens to be the stem cell that give back. So that's a big misnomer. It's not a drug, it's a supportive blood transfusion. But within the field of transplant for autoimmune disease, there are really two ways of approaching it. And that is what is being missed. And that is whether it's myeloablative or non-myeloablative. Now, myeloablative are those cancer regimens. If you don't collect and give the stem cells from the blood or bone marrow back, the patient will die. The patient's yeah. not going to recover. Right. Um, so you have to do that. You myeloablative, it ablates myelopoiesis. It ablates the bone marrow. Okay. And you're not going to recover if you don't give them back. So you have to collect them and give them back. And then you have more toxicity of mucositis and other things. Non-myeloblative means you don't have to give the stem cells back. You're going to recover just fine without them. But by giving them back, you hasten recovery by about four, maybe five days, depending on the regimen. And anything that brings accounts back and gets you out of the hospital sooner is a good thing for you. And it decreases risks. Because, you know, risk of infection, the longer you're neutropenic, the higher the risk of infection that could get out of control. So to be able to, it's just a supportive blood product. You don't have to give it, but it's a prudent thing to do. And in non-myeloablative, in myeloablative, you have to give it. Now, in cancer with autologous transplant, the rationale is you're going, because you can rescue the bone marrow compartment by giving those the bone marrow stem cells back. You increase the dose and attempt to kill the cancer. You can't go any higher than that because you kill other organs. For the rationale, that's not the rationale for an autoimmune disease. The autoimmune disease, you don't want to kill the stem cell compartment. Your stem cells for the vast majority of autoimmune diseases. I mean, there's some childhood immune-mediated diseases that are genetic defects. And I discuss those. We, we have an excellent chapter in this book on that. But those are rare. For most autoimmune diseases, especially in adults, they're not a preordained stem cell defect. Uh, you know, genetics may play a role in it, but it's environmental and other factors, maybe even related to hormones and stuff, because uh, a lot of autoimmune diseases are more predominant in females than males. But in any event, it's multifactorial, and the stem cell itself is okay. It's as it differentiate into these immune cells, where down the line as you're living, you could end up with an autoimmune disorder. And so that's because those stem cells, for example, the lymphocytes, B and T cells are called, uh, there's other types of, stem, of immune cells, but they, they're long lived. Once you make them, they live with you the rest of your life. And so if it goes abnormal, it could be that then you again have persistent problems. And uh, in fact, in MS, in most cases, 90% of relapse are remitting. So, you know, it kind of goes abnormal, corrects itself, abnormal, corrects itself for a period of time until you get into progressive degeneration. So the goal with a non-myeloblative is to focus on those immune cells, not the stem cells, certainly not other organs. So you minimize toxicity and you knock those, those immune cells down. And then by in non-myeloblative, you don't have to give them back, but by giving the stem cells back, you hasten the recovery and regeneration of those immune cells. And what happens is when you knock down the immune cells that have gotten so out of whack and you stop inflammation, upon regeneration of the immune cells, the body's default is towards tolerance. And that's why we get these remissions. Now, with every disease, the regimen, the conditioning regimen to knock those immune cells down has to be perfected. And it's different for different diseases. And I describe that in the book. For instance, yes. neuromyelitis optica used to be considered a type of MS. It's now a separate central nervous system demyelinating disease than MS, and it's much more rare. 
but you have to use a different regimen for that, a little more aggressive one for it to really work with that is autologous non-myeloablative. And what people again don't understand, they think myeloablative is more intense and more intense is better, but you can make a non-myeloablative even more intense in terms of mutant suppression than myeloablative. You just don't destroy the stem cell compartment, which is a wise thing not to do. So, uh, and also the concept of more is better that you have in cancer isn't really true here. What you're trying to reachieve is balance. Because when the immune system recovers, it will naturally redevelop T cells with repertoires to identify self. In fact, as it regenerates during thymic regeneration, if it has, it randomly rearranges the receptor on the T cell to recognize different antigens in your body. If it doesn't recognize self, it dies. It disappears. So autoreactive T cells are normal. But if it recognizes self with a high avidity, affinity, very high binding, it'll also, it will in most cases flip to a T regulatory cell that shuts down inflammation. But it regenerates cells that can recognize self as well as non-self to fight foreign or tissue or uh, bacteria or whatever, fungus or viruses. But it, um, it always will have the potential to recognize self is just energic and won't do it. And that's why the immune system is kind of tricky. You know, it's not a simple yes, no. It's, you, it's a complex interaction of multiple cells and multiple pathways to achieve a kind of a balance. And what the autologous transplant is just kind of resets that. And so the question is, how long would it do that? Now, it does something very different than drugs because it's a one-time treatment, you get off all drugs, and then you get better and you stay better. You don't have relapses or progression of disease or new activity in MRI. But um, uh, the question is, how long would that last? And we have publications going out to five years and tend not to follow people after that. It asks a lot for people to come back to get MRIs and be evaluated, especially when they're doing great. And you know they're thankful to be free of the medical system. I'm actually amazed how often patients would come back without trying to prod them or anything. Um, but um, you know, at some point they stopped coming back. And so in writing this book, I was randomly contacting, you know, I didn't organize in any way, just randomly contacting people 10, 15, 18, 20, 21 years after transplant. Uh, and they're with MS, just with MS. And they were still in remission, hadn't had any more drugs, got better, stayed better. And so I was like, wow. That's exactly what I wanted when I had this idea 35 years ago. Um, and it's kind of reiterated that I don't know where I'll find the time or if I will, but it would be a good idea to systematically look at everybody beyond 10 years and, and how they're doing. Because uh, it appears that the, the majority have got into remission, stayed in remission, and are doing great free of drugs with improvement in their quality of life. And probably one of the things that isn't in the literature and that is, and it's not obvious to a lot of people, it's obvious in cardiology, heart, that the heart tissue is life. So there's an emergency to revascularize the heart when you have a heart attack, because the longer there's ischemia, the bigger the infarct. And then you're not gonna have much of an existence if you survive at all. You're not gonna be able to do much, heart won't function well. Well, in MS, the brain's undergoing accelerated atrophy. Unfortunately, as, as we age, all of us, without MS, without any diseases. As we get older, there's a slow atrophy in the brain. It's unfortunate, but true, but it's very slow. When you have MS, it's a lot faster. And uh, 
uh, I think these non-myeloblative regimens that target the immune system and mark recovery afterward most likely return you to the normal aging path of loss, not the accelerated path of, path of neural degeneration that you see with MS. And so, um, you know, I put that with a caveat because there needs to be more, more work done on that and measuring atrophy by MRIs is a, a lot of work. But I think if rather than looking at relapses or progression, ideally people should start looking at brain atrophy. That's the key. That's what you want to stop. You got to start thinking of that more as kind of an emergent pro uh, problem, like a heart attack, or at least semi-acute. Interesting. You, you don't Interesting. want accelerated brain atrophy that occurs with MS. You want to get it back to the normal, what happens when you normally age, or someday, hopefully, even stop that from happening, or eventually reverse it as you age. But uh, you certainly don't want it going faster, and that's what happens in this disease. And so, you know, this slow treatment, just slowing progression, but not stopping it or reversing it is allowing that accelerated brain atrophy to continue. And I think that's kind of being missed out there uh, by the patients in the medical community. And this should be treated more aggressively upfront. Uh, you know, it's, it's what's that saying go, it's a terrible thing to waste a mind. And that's what's going on by kind of slowly treating people. It's not just that I see so many people, even now I see them who come to me and they're secondary progressive and they've just been allowed to get to that point over, I just had one over 10 years. I mean, and then this therapy really isn't effective anymore. So it's too late. So it's not just moving it earlier to prevent them from getting into a non-active secondary progressive where you, it's, you know, it's not gonna work. It's, you wanna do it sooner uh, to stop an accelerated uh, atrophy in the brain. I mean, that's this, interesting. I think that's an important point that's just been totally missed out there. You know, even post HSCT, and Jody, you know, let me know what you think. All we care about is post HSCT. I know when I get an MRI, all I care about is is there any inflammation? Is there anything new and any progression? I never, ever think about brain atrophy, which is always on the report. You know, it'll say brain atrophy, normal for age or whatever. Do you ever think, like Jody, have you ever thought about the atrophy part of it? Um, not really. I know in all the groups, it does talk about like, oh, no new lesions or no inflammation. But it does say on the MRIs, it talks about brain atrophy, but it's, right. it, is, it is a very interesting point to, to think about that. Yeah, I like I I never that's never at the top of my well, let's take a look at my brain atrophy and my lesions and was so never those, when they say atrophy, then it's really a remarkable thing and then it stands out. It's obvious. The subtle change normal aging atrophy and the subtle change that occurs with MS where it's more rapid, that requires quite a bit of work on those MRIs to pull that data out. And that's just not done in those reports. So when they say there's atrophy, it's frank atrophy. You know, it's really obvious. Uh, but I think in the future, that should be a, an endpoint that should be critical in these in everybody, especially when you start having effective therapy to compare the different drugs, is looking at the difference in brain atrophy between drugs and transplants and uh, actually, that's something I didn't I didn't even bring up in here, brain atrophy. There's so much more I could have gone on with uh, a whole nother book. But, uh, you know, as I mentioned, because they said people won't read beyond so many words, I had to stop it. But it was good to have the opportunity to bring it up here. And yes, patients don't talk about it. Doctors don't talk about it. 
Yeah. Uh, and when it's mentioned in a report, it's gross. When they say that it's that they don't see it in that report, it's just not a big obvious mm -hmm. thing that stands out in front of them. Jody, I know I'm kind of backtracking a little to the Milo and non-Milo ablative protocols. I know, Jody, you had a certain experience talking to a Canadian doctor when you were telling them that you were going to Mexico as opposed to having it done in Canada. And they had a myeloablative protocol, correct? Yep. And what was their response? And I'm curious to see what Dr. Bird thinks about what they said to you about the non-myeloablative protocol you would be getting in Mexico. Yeah. So I, I went to see this doctor after, about a year after I had it. And he kind of scoffed at my treatment in Mexico. And he said, oh, you just had baby chemo. Yeah. So uh, unfortunately, there is this paternalistic or colonialistic attitude towards patients and that, you know, our desires are more important than yours. That's prevalent in medicine. I don't know how that paternalism came about. If you're patient-centric, if you make the patient first, that kind of evaporates. You still have your professional emphasis and knowledge that you try to convey and help them with, but you also recognize limitations and what you don't know. And that, uh, look, this patient went there, got a different regimen, but they're doing really good. So that's good. Now, of course, it's always a question how long they continue to do well. Uh, there will probably never really be, well, that's not true. I'm doing it now. But outside of me, there will probably never really be a study comparing different regimens, uh, which would be the only way to really answer that question definitively. Uh, but what I can say is the Canadians use the most aggressive regimen out there that is used for leukemias, and it's a very high-dose busulfan-based regimen. And they show within the first two years acceleration of brain atrophy, and then it goes back to baseline. So you could say one explanation for that is that it's the residual inflammation in the brain that takes two years to settle down, even though you stopped it. But the other could be that the drug, especially busulfan, is causing some neural degeneration and accelerated atrophy for that first two years, and then you're you go to a baseline of normal aging. So one of the things to always keep in mind is that the drugs we use for the conditioning regimen, do they have any CNS toxicity? And when I first started this, and no one had ever done a transplant for MS, that was always in the back of my mind, you know, can we make things worse? And that's a very important thing. It's I say in the book that, you know, young doctors think medications are this magic pill. And yeah, they can really help people and have magical type of effects, but uh, all medications are also toxins. They all have toxicities. And, it, and what young doctors often miss, and the first thing I do when a patient comes to me with a complaint is I look at their medication list. Is it a medication doing this? And not infrequently it is. Even eight, my patients who come back to me on a medication I've prescribed, and they're having a complaint, and I look, and it's the medication I'm giving them. So, you know, you, one of the things that's also not appreciated is that in the very aggressive regimens, there could be some neurodegenerative effects that can accelerate brain atrophy compared uh, to baseline aging. And then as that wears off, because you get a year or two out from that drug, you, and you also stop the inflammation of MS, you go back to normal aging atrophy. But again, the key here is you don't want, you want to stop brain atrophy or at least get it to normal aging. And you certainly don't want to do anything that accelerates it, even if it's uh, transiently. Now, what I'm saying is theoretical. I don't know that's the case, 
but I'm just saying, um, you know, if you see the results you have gotten and I get with non-myeloplative, you kind of have to step back and ask, why am I taking the upfront risks of infection and, uh, you know, uh, mucositis and liver damage and organ damage and possibly even some neurotoxicity uh, when it's not necessary, when you, you can get really good results with these non-myeloblative regimens. And so part of it, everybody has their own preference. And, you know, I would have to admit that, okay, most people think they do myeloblative because they think it's going to be better. More is better. Right. I don't. Right. But, okay. They could yeah. be right, but here are the results doing it this way. And I think we really want to focus initially on safety and, uh, and uh, before jumping, if it's not working there, jumping to one of these aggressive regimens. My bias after, you know, treating more patients than anywhere in the world, well, outside of Mexico or Russia, uh, I, uh, I, you know, this non-myeloblade really works well. And so I don't have a desire to go to the myeloblade more intense, more risky regimens with more associated toxicity, uh, both short-term and long-term, uh, you know, because you're always concerned a patient could die. And if a patient does die, it's, it's really devastating. And mm -hmm. you certainly don't want a patient to die. And you can never promise when a patient goes to transplant that they can't die. You have to be right. very upfront. No, you right. can't even with the non-mild, but is it these things happen? Yes. But you want yes. to at least try to yes. maximize or minimize. You want to minimize the risk of dying, maximize the benefit to risk ratio of what right. we're doing here. So it's really weird when I first proposed this concept, nobody had ever done it. Everybody thought it was too risky. And then as time went on, everything flipped where I'm arguing against the more risky procedure that I don't think is at all necessary. Uh, and that you can get these really good results with a non-myeloblative regimen. So how do you approach this? And because there's the unknown and there's never been a comparative study between the non-myeloblative and myeloblative, and the truth is, I don't think there ever will be. The, and people have their biases, their physicians, some of them very strongly stated that uh, uh, I think that you have to let the patient decide. You have to give them informed consent. It's not just you can continue X, Y, or Z drug. You can have a non-myeloblative, myeloblative regimen. And with non-myeloblatives, there are different intensities. And yeah. it has then you you give your best opinion, but you have to let the patient make that decision. And unfortunately, a lot of patients aren't made aware of that. And that's uh, been a frustrating thing to see that. And again, that's where I wanted to write the book. I wanted to inform the patients. It's mm -hmm. your body. It's your life. It's your brain. And it's your ultimate decision at the end. It's not someone else. And that paternalistic attitude that it's my decision and right. it's offensive if you make a decision. Otherwise, I don't know where that comes from. You know, that's yeah. not being patient-centric and, and making the patient first. And unfortunately, that's way too common. Uh, uh, so, you know, it's just... I, when patients come to me, I read them the bright act of what, everything that can happen, including death. And yeah. I'm always surprised how, you know, the only patient gets upset to me is when I say I'm not going to do it. And it's not that I have a carrot here that I'm trying to tease them and say I won't right. give them. It's because it's not going to help them. Right. It's the secondary progressive is not going to help. So I, I can't put them through a risk when I don't believe there will be any benefit for them. Uh, how that's not ethical and uh, right. you know the patients are devastated because they talk to other patients who are doing well 
but you know it's it's that when you get these certainly non-active secondary progressives you cannot help them and uh, they you know you, you put them through the risk procedure without potential benefits so uh, you just can't do that um, and then of course there could be another medical condition they have that would contraindicate it and so forth so I want I want to ask you that's a good segue into this next question. One of the many things that I discovered about you and the beginning when you started doing HSCT and what you were trying to prove to everyone else, I did not realize, and I don't know if I just missed it somewhere along the way, and if I'm wrong, tell me, I did not realize how much you were not banking on, your concentration was on reversal and not just halting the disease. Right. And I say that because, and even though I'm still technically relapsing remitting on the books, you know, at my own neurologist I've seen for 20 years, Dr. Fedorenko, after when I went there, after going over all of my information, he told me that I was on the cusp I was relapsing remitting because I had 10, at least 10 lesions that were inflamed at the time, enhancing on MRI when I got there. He said I was on the cusp of HS or of SPMS. And I know, and I have, and Jody has many, many SPMS patients who have been treated in Mexico, treated in Russia. And now, just like me, I did not have reversal of everything. I still have foot drop. I still some things aren't as bad as they were. Some things stayed the same. And I know for me and for a lot of SPMS people, the halting of the, the disease itself, and and we even preach it. I mean, for the last ten years, we've been preaching halting the disease is the goal. Any symptomatic reversal is a bonus. That that's our mantra, and. So, so when I, I, I was, I was kind of, I was really surprised, not in a bad way, because I loved learning your whole process. I just, what do you say to the SPMS patient who's totally cool with just, I mean, not ever, ever having to, having to take another MS drug, which I've had no MS drug in the last 10 years. I, after a year and a half, I was able to get rid of my foot brace that I had worn in two years, or that I had worn in two years. So there were little things like that, but I was, I'm not, I can't run, you know, I can't skip or hop or jump or anything like that. And I'm cool with that. It, the halting was good for me and it has been for so many others. It, has your opinion changed? Not really opinion, but what do you, what do you say to that? And the fact that it almost sounds like if it wasn't reversal, then it wasn't a success. That's the thing. And many people say, when we put up the success rates in our in our Facebook groups, you know, the success in, you know, all the different percentages of success, at least in Russia, people will say, well, what do you consider success? And Dr. Fedorenko has his definition of success. Do you still believe today that simply halting the, the disease is not considered a success? Well, for me personally, what I want is to reverse disability. That is success. We all do. We all want, want that. So, you know, when you, when you and with, with relapsing remitting, you do that with 
active secondary progressive, you do it not as much. It's a much smaller effect, but you can do it. Once you get to non-active secondary progressive, you don't. Now the question is, do you, can you stabilize people and call that a success? And because we have in the development of this done, initially we started with secondary progressive and some would stabilize and others would continue to progress. So uh, for me, that's just, uh, I, I don't know how to separate those two groups out in the secondary progressive. And so- Did you tell, What's the difference between non-active and active secondary progressive? So the difference between relapse remitting and secondary progressive to begin with is hard to define when it happens because it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen. It's not like you. somebody flips a switch and says, oh, now you're secondary progressive. So what happens is a doctor could see you every month and you don't seem different. And then all of a sudden he notice, looks back at his notes from two years ago and you're worse. But you didn't have a clear acute attack for that to happen. But your baseline is now worse and staying worse. That's secondary progressive. So it's kind of a, always a retrospective diagnosis. Okay. Um, so, you know, but obviously once you get late secondary progressive, it's very clear. But what's going on in secondary progressive, if your baseline is slowly, gradually deteriorating, but you still occasionally have an acute attack, that is a new lesion on MRI or an enhancing lesion, right. that's active secondary progressive. So I define active secondary progressive as that baseline is now starting to gradually deteriorate without an acute attack, but you will still, with the MRI within the last year, still had a enhancing lesion uh, or a very clear new lesion. So I would call that active secondary progressive. Once you get non-active secondary progressive, you see no more new lesions in MRI, but you're de declining and you're going through neurodegeneration. So uh, once you're out at non-active secondary progressive, it's, it's, it's too late, I think. I think you... Uh, I actually think what happens is this, the reason you get to that non-active secondary progressive without any new lesions is the immune system, even when you have relapse remitting, you have an attack, it goes away. Your immune system is trying to reset itself all the time. But what happens, you know, 10, 15, 20, or maybe just three, depending how aggressive it is, or two or five years later, uh, you, you get in because you've had such aggressive disease into this progressive neurologic degeneration, and the immune system may, during that process or right before it, successfully reset itself. So you're not having any more immune attack, but now you have a neurodegenerative phase. So transplant really just shifts that normal reset of the immune system right up to after the transplant. And you want to do it before you get into neuroregeneration so that you don't have all that impairment. That's where this therapy works. I think once you have non-active secondary progressive, you need another type of truly, uh, you know, neuroregenerative therapy, a true neuroregenerative stem cell therapy, which this isn't. This is an immune regenerative therapy. Now, there are caveats in there and there are unknowns. And just like going back to this debate between myeloblative, non-myeloblative, and these physicians are very, some, some very adamant about myeloblative, twice as expensive, more toxic, not known to be more effective, but that's what they believe. But, you know, they think more is better. And there's no hard data randomized trial between the two to prove them otherwise. So I can't say right. they're wrong, but I can say here are the results with a safer regimen and here's the timing to do it, which I've always been saying, let the patient decide. Uh, so um, th there, are, th you know, this neurodegeneration is a little trickier 
and we'll learn more. There's always more to learn. Every door that opens leads to other doors that are locked that you have to figure out how to open. But for instance, a lot of people get an uh, antibody to CD20, like ocrelizumab, ocrevus. And what I have seen, and it's really not there in the literature, but I've seen patients on ocrevus who come to me and their MRI stopped showing any new activity at all, but they are in secondary progressive with neurodegeneration. So they started relapsing remitting, and the physicians give them ocrelizumab, and they think they're doing great because the MRI shows no new lesions, but you know, after 10 years, they're all secondary progressive without new lesions. So there's something else going on there. That's why I'm saying brain atrophy is a key endpoint measurement that nobody's really reporting because there's something weird. So when I do non-myeloblative and it stops inflammation in the brain, they don't 10 years later end up without new activity in the brain, but secondary progressive. No, they get better and stay better. So there's something weird with, with that uh, ocrelizumab. Now there's no reports, uh, methodical study of this, see what percentage occurs in, but I see it. And so it worries me when these patients get on it and then they go and the doctor says nothing new on the MRI and they're relieved by that. Right. Because too many, despite that, end up secondary progressive. I don't know if there's some below the MRI threshold inflammation going on, that's not being right. stressed, that's leading to that secondary progressive. Like not everybody can get a T7 MRI. Or if there's something else there that isn't quite explained related to that drug or to the immune system. Uh, you know, perhaps, you know, you, when we talk about MS, we say the, the immune system is causing this, so you think of it as bad, but the immune system is also your ally and it's your cavalry that, that comes and gets you out of the hospital and, you know, is the godsend that recovers after transplant. Your immune system is a good thing, but in MS, it becomes abnormal attacking your own brain. But there are data out there that immune cells are important for health of the nervous system and health of other cells. And perhaps selectively removing the B cell. Now, this is all theoretical, as ocrelizumab does, is somehow impairing a healthy trophic interaction between a certain part of the immune system and neurons. Theoretical, but I'm just saying there's these things run through my mind that are being missed out there. And so, um, you know, there are more questions that need to be investigated and resolved as time goes on. And I'm pretty sure somebody's going to eventually write a paper, start looking seriously at people on Ocrevus, and despite no new activity on the MRI, ending up after many years with secondary progressive MS, that neurodegeneration is still ongoing, which is very unique to these anti-CD20 antibodies, uh, and predominantly with Ocrevus, but it may well be with some of the other newer ones that are also on the market for this. So, you know, that's why, that's a classic case of saying, you know, drugs can be very effective, but drugs are toxins and perhaps there are side effects related to this. And of course, that's why, again, I have hesitations with these intense myeloblative regimens because they're extremophile toxins. So the, the, the easier and less toxic, if you can get good results, the better. Um, and so for me, that's, that's my focus. That's where I want to go. And so now I'm comparing two regimens, one cytoxin ATG that I've always done, versus cytoxin rituximab like they did in Russia or 
similar. They do it a little different in Mexico because they split the doses of cytoxin, but kind of it's the same cytoxin rituximab because I know cytoxin rituximab is effective, but will it be as effective as cytoxin ATG? It'll be cheaper. It won't have the fever of ATG up front, and it'll allow you to move it to an outpatient, which will make it even cheaper and better. Uh, but will the results be different? And if they're not that different, great. I just, you know, I'm not trying to say one's better than another. I want to see if we can identify both in sh short term for cost, expense, fever, antibiotics, workup, and longer term duration of remission, and not uh, not just terms of you know, nothing new on MRI, but that you get better, stay better, don't have any progression, and don't need any medications. That was another thing that I learned from the book, which I always wondered about, and I can never get a clear answer, and not, not from you, nobody in the, the groups knew, as to why you used ATG as opposed to anything else with cytoxin. And it had something to do with a quick drop in platelets, correct? From the CAMPATH, yeah. So the, yes. the first non-myeloblative regimen was cytoxin CAMPATH. And one of the late effects of CAMPATH is ITP, that is sudden drop in the ITP, yeah. ITP. And it's the alentuzumab that does that, or called Lemtrada or CAMPATH alentuzumab. It's you know, different names for the same thing. Yeah. So, um, and I explained in there how these drugs have different names, you know, so I generally just use one of the names, but it tends to make it confusing, but they're the same drug. So, um, uh, by the way, it's called CAMPATH because it was developed in Cambridge, Cambridge University, that's in England, Cambridge University Pathology Department, so CAMPATH. But then it was it subsequently given the name, uh, you know, Alan Tuzumab and then Lemtrada. Um, but yeah, so... Lemtrada by itself causes ITP, and it had been approved by the FDA. Everything you know hadn't occurred in the study, the randomized trial or the trials before that. It was approved, and then all of a sudden, people got ITP and died, and so they stopped it, and then they restarted it. But the recommendation is you check platelet counts every month for like two years or whatever. But you can ITP when it occurs usually occurs in the first two years, but it can occur later. I had one occur at three years, and the problem is. I had a patient come to me for routine evaluation, doing great, and the plate count was normal because we always check it when they come for the routine evaluation. One week later, the, just one week later, the patient called and said, the easy bruising, we've got a CBC, the platelet count, and it was in the basement. It had dropped to eight, which can lead to potential life-threatening bleed, intracranial hemorrhage, everything, and that's ITP. So the ITP occurs that fast. So checking a platelet count every month, that's really giving the doctor some comfort, but not really the patient because it can drop. Right. So uh, I stopped using alentuzumab because the incidence of that was about 12 to 14%. And I then later figured out why that was. I wondered why that was. And that's in other literature we reported. The reason that arises is because when you use alentuzumab, which is an anti-CD52, you, your, your B, naive B cells just skyrocket, go way above normal within one month of, of, uh, of discharge from the hospital. But your regulatory T cells that regulate those B cells are delayed well beyond one year. Your CD4 T cells are very delayed. And the uh, you know, T reg cells, which are the regulatory subset of CD4, are even much more delayed. So basically, these rapid increase in immune, in naive and immature B cells that occurs early on and they have no 
T cell regulation on them can result in a quite a, in not just ITP, which is a B cell mediated autoimmune disease, but other B cell mediated autoimmune diseases as well. Uh, you know, so um, um, it's that's a side effect of alentuzumab given as a monodrug as it's used now for MS, but also in in a treatment regimen. Um, and it just concerned me that you know people would work hard and ignore the easy bruising. I would, and then there'd be yeah. some horrible accident. So you know we told everybody to watch for that, and we tell them with cytoxin ATT to watch for it. And more often than not, they get a they're worried they get a CBC and it's normal. Well, that's good. I'd rather have that happen than have them ignore it and have some serious event occur uh, or lethal. But still, even with cytoxin ATG, it's about two percent. Two to three percent. So it's we we markedly decreased it, but it's not zero. And it's something we really have to caution people about, and that they're aware of. Uh, and that that ITP is for specific for regimens. So toxicity depends on the regimen you're doing, but also the diseases. We generally don't see it for the other diseases. For MS, we can see it with particular regimens, especially. And the cytoxin campath is one such one. So that led me to, I, I knew if I was gonna continue this, I had to somehow markedly decrease that late side effect of it occurring one, two, three years later. And so uh, uh, I switched cytoxin ATG. And even though I still get it about two to 3% of the time, you know, given the overall benefit, and of course, it's the patient's decision and to watch for it. And if it happens, we can reverse it, but we, you know, you can't just ignore it until you have a lethal bleed. Uh, so, um, you know, it's, it's, for me, it's acceptable going forward, but again, it's something the patient has to decide on their own, being aware of it and cautioned about it. Uh, now, the question is, are there ways we could further modify that? And the, there are theoretical ways, but I don't know yet if any of those ways will prevent it. Uh, so I'm not gonna lead you down that path because I don't know, but I do have some ideas of what can be done to uh, maybe totally get rid of it or make it you know, less than 0.5%. Uh, but in any event, um, um, that's, you know, now my approach, and I'm the only one doing that in the world is comparing two regimens that are non-myeloblative to see which one will have like no or less risk of late ITP, as well as uh, you know, how, you know, be cheaper upfront with less fever, less use of antibiotics, less blood draws for cultures and so forth, chest X-rays for infection and so forth, and uh, have uh, which one has better, or if they have identical uh, long-term results in terms of uh, no disease activity, that is, no relapses, no progression, and no new lesions in MRI, and then ultimately. Uh, it, it, it's expensive to do it, but ultimately the best way is to look at uh, uh, brain atrophy. And that gets complicated. It's not just the brain, it's the cervical spinal cord that you need to look at too for atrophy. I guess ideally thoracic, but that is way too hard, so cervical and brain. Next week in part two of two, Dr. Burt answers even more questions about HSCT for MS. Links to his book, and website will be listed in the episode notes. For more information on the MS Gym, you can find them on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and at www.themsgym.com. We'll see you on the next episode.